0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and with me today is Michael Zuckerman, a Consulting Senior Product Marketing Manager who works with the Infoblox Cyber Intelligence Unit, or CIU, every quarter to collect actionable details on the top threats for that period. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Bob. Now, as you know, the reason we asked you is that you've just finished work on the Q1 report with the Cyber Intelligence Unit. Yes, that's correct. All right, so let's start with understanding who is the Cyber Intelligence Unit. This is the first time we've had you here. So, who are
1: these people behind these reports? The basic threat intelligence report data is assembled by the Cyber Intelligence Unit. Uh, They publish information on threats they discover and study uh, about once a quarter and uh, usually weekly on active threats. The core of the CIU is located in Tacoma, Washington, but they have engineering staff and threat researchers around the globe. Yeah, I
0: know. And they've actually uh, just recently renewed that facility up there and are expanding. So uh, good things coming out of uh, Washington these days. So let's clarify for those listening how this report is going to be different than a lot of the other reports. Um, I'd like to first of all highlight what it is not. Um, the traditional numerical report with tables and charts highlighting the top 10 this and you know these are the top three reasons
1: for x Um, that's not what this one is right Uh, no bob it isn't it's it's less data and more qualitative information the traditional scary story type of report has thankfully become less common Uh, vendors like them because they get some media coverage but the security teams really work hard to get something useful or actionable out of them beyond you know buy our stuff right yeah. Um, at most a CISO could quote these reports to convince board members to to chip in some funding. Uh, but the go-to report for that type is more typically the annual Verizon data breach report, which is which is a sound document.
0: Yeah, that I was actually looking at that report earlier this morning because we had a customer who wanted some statistics and you know they're already there, so why repeat the work? Um But I'm even seeing that some boards are getting desensitized to a lot of that data because a lot of the data they do include is just that redundant. We saw more threats this year than in any other year, which has been true every year for the last 30 years. It's not really a a prediction. It's like just that's the way it works.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Uh, These reports tend to easily confuse people, especially when they compare them. You know, vendors really don't count threats using the same methodology, one vendor may have claimed to have seen 10 X the threats of their closest competitor. So it it rarely means they have more visibility, but it's more often due to creative accounting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember one uh, situation where one company said that they detected like, you know, 20 new forms of ransomware and somebody else had like 45,000 forms of ransomware, but it was just variants that, you know, one counted variants. One was counting the, the core, you know, theme or so now at the other end of the spectrum are those massive deep dive threat reports that you know go into a specific attack or threat and they talk about you know who's the group behind it and they show lots of code snip that's um and of course the advantage of those over the other reports is that they are very educational and often actionable because of the details they provide but the q1 report we're going to be going over today it isn't one of those either is it
1: well Not quite. It's more of a hybrid of these two. So the CIU is a very serious group. They identify the top threats as you would for the old style report, but they provide a condensed version of a deep dive for each of those top threats. It's designed to be easily consumed by a security team that's already short on free time. They have no free time, right? For example, they will diagram out the various stages of how a threat is used in a multi-stage attack which is the new normal for cyber attacks, right? In addition to the deep dive, we then kind of take a higher level assessment of the quarter by calling out any shifts in tactics, you know, trends, techniques that a security team might need to be aware of.
0: Yeah, because it's not just that one attack. You're you're trying to prepare for a lot of different attacks. So before we jump into the report itself, though, would you summarize for our audience, what is the...
1: Infoblox quarterly threat report? Glad to. The Infoblox quarterly cyber threat intelligence report is published during the first month of each calendar quarter and covers the preceding quarter, the 90 days prior. This Q1 2021 report being released later um, in April includes all of our publicly released threat intelligence from Jan 1, 2021 through March 31. We released this report pretty much like clockwork once a quarter. Um, In the most recent report, we describe about a dozen threats researched and published in our threat intelligence reports. This is all timely data and highly valuable to the SOC team and the other members of your security organization.
0: Well, of course, I got a a sneak peek at uh, the draft of the report. And one of the things that stood out to me that I wanted to talk to you about was the, the solar winds or Sunburst attack Which you know, a lot of people think. Well, that's been kind of talked into the dirt, Um, but you know, the CIU. I know one of their directives is to try and provide some unique new value uh, when they introduce their their reports. And so, while this started in December, though, we actually saw a lot of activity throughout Q1 related to this attack. So, can you help us understand how this is new or unique compared to all the other major breaches we've seen over the last few years? How does Sunburst compare to
1: previous big breaches? Okay, so this is a big discussion. SolarWinds and Sunburst really seem to escalate the cyber war. Let's think about what they did. So CISA's analysis of the attack on SolarWinds concluded that the threat actors added a malicious version of a binary into the SolarWinds software lifecycle. This was then digitally signed by a legitimate SolarWinds code code signing certificate. These are key words, digitally signed, right? This malicious code essentially became trusted once it was digitally signed, defeating the purpose that code signing serves in providing reassurance to users that the code an organization distributes can be trusted, right? Crafting a cyber attack strategy to breach a software provider's most secured, continuous integration, continuous delivery pipeline means that threat actors are making no bones about aiming for the heart of cyber defense. Essentially yes. by, by breaching the CICD pipeline, threat actors are capable of using you know, any organization's trusted reputation to distribute malware across their user base. This, is, this brings pretty staggering implications. Oh, yeah. So the problem is not with code signing and the problem is not with the integrity of, of organizations that use that technique but rather the fact that once a highly sophisticated threat actor is deep inside your networks, they can find opportunities to break what ordinarily would be a really secure process. They can observe your day-to-day operations. They can watch how things are approved. They can find opportunities to insert themselves and in their you know, malicious code into the process flow. And so you know, part of the takeaway is, given this challenge is becoming more real, right? We have some really sophisticated threat actors out there. Software suppliers need to review their code signing policies and strategies. Where are we storing the private keys? You know, how are we controlling the process flow? And consider how to manage their inventory of code signing certificates much more closely.
0: Yeah, this is is interesting because, I mean, we're typically used to the kinds of threats that either, you know, in the old days, they would try to just destroy data by erasing your hard drive or something and and chuckling, ha, 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 we got you. Then they went to stealing data. um, And then we went to ransomware. And now this is the fourth kind of of activity they can do to execute, which is we're just going to go get in, modify stuff without you knowing it, so that we can then do our attack elsewhere. So for the attack's progress, these infected systems had to communicate back to attackers, though. Because once they got in, um, you know, they had to go back and, and, you know, to a C2 or something. And the report mentions that they were using a domain generation algorithm, a DGA, to help them bypass all of the traditional gateway defenses. So can you share some details on that aspect of it?
1: Yes. As always, DNS is in the mix. Anytime an attacker wants to reach out to a domain with any kind of piece of software they, they place anywhere, they need to use DNS. There's almost no way around it. From a DNS perspective, um, the Infoblock CIU was able to verify that once the victim was infected with sunburst, the malware beaconed to um, a certain address with a host name designed by a domain generation algorithm to exfiltrate data about the victim. The threat actor can return One of several responses in the form of an IP. So, from our analysis, it appeared that the number of entities that received direction to move to the second stage domains passed via a CNAME resolution is much smaller than the overall number that, you know, contact the initial server. It's still unclear how the actor chooses which victims to move into different stages of the attack. You know, respectfully submitted, this is a very large and very complex discussion around solar winds and sunbursts. DNS security, you know, is part of the takeaway here. This is a critical part of your defense. Another important layer for your defense in depth, you know, ties in with whatever you're doing and thinking about zero trust. If one of your listeners, you know, wants to engage more deeply, they can reach out to our field cybersecurity teams and we can, you know, sit down and talk more about, you know, this attack and how you can mitigate it.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's interesting, all of this that we're talking about really is about SolarWinds um, customers. We're still waiting for SolarWinds themselves because this is all internal, you know, private information that, of course, they should be sharing, hopefully, with FBIs and others. But, you know, you kind of wonder how did they get the certificate in the first place. But really right now, what everybody's worried about and why the report focuses on this other end of it is because that's the only part you can do today to protect yourselves. Um, SolarWinds already been compromised. And if you're a SolarWinds customer, these are things you have to do. And now we've seen things like this too. Since then, this was maybe the first one on most people's radar, uh, because this was in December, but only a month later in January, Mimecast, another security vendor, they were breached in the same way with a compromised certificate. So if we're starting to see all these (laughs) security vendors being compromised, which then puts
1: all of their customers at risk, What does this say about trusting our security vendors? Well, like anything else, you need to manage them, right? Like any software service, you test updates before rolling them out. Certainly going without security may be far riskier than trusting them, right? Yeah. The trend today also includes initiatives such as zero trust, right? So really you're not trusting any employee, any business partner, any channel partner, or anyone beyond an analysis of their very current activities leading up to the moment of a request to access applications, resources, data, and their ability to authenticate correctly, hopefully with two factors and completely at that step in the workflow. So I think zero trust is a good philosophy to carry in hand as you manage this problem. Yeah, I actually um,
0: dug up an old political cartoon that I remember seeing about a bunch of soldiers getting ready to jump out of an airplane and one guy walks up and he doesn't have his parachute on and somebody says, hey, you need one of these parachutes. And the guy says, no way, I've heard that sometimes they don't work. And then he just jumps out the plane. So yeah, going without a security vendor is definitely not the way to go. Um, You just need to monitor and and think it through and do your part. Um, So thanks, I wanted to get all of that out of the way since SolarWinds and Sunburst continue to be in the press, top of mind, even if we're seeing less activity around it, uh, a lot of the customers now have patched and so forth. So let's move on to the higher level trends that the report talks about. We obviously don't have time to go into each of the dozen or so deep dives that it has. Um, But at the, you know, the early version that I've been looking at here, it talks about cloud vulnerabilities. Um, So what what do we mean by this and how is this factoring into breaches in Q1? Well,
1: it's factoring in quite a bit, right? So, you know, we talk about the digital transformation, the cloud transformation, and all of this over the past few years presented a learning curve that was just too steep for too many and and probably an investment curve that was much steeper than people understood. Even the most capable enterprise security architects in many ways were almost like novices had to start from scratch to determine what security controls were really required to protect new cloud environments. Uh, New vendors had to invent the security controls that were required to protect these cloud environments. So new security controls were not well integrated, if at all, right? Most of us know that the leading cause of cloud breach vulnerability continues to just be basic errors in cloud administration, configuration, setup, too many points of administration, too many dashboards and too many policies to propagate through different systems, synchronize and maintain consistently. It's really created a cyber attackers paradise.
0: Yeah, because cyber attackers are gonna try and, you know, basically take advantage of user error. And uh, yeah, that's what we're seeing. And I also recall that when, you know, everybody started moving to the cloud, the all the hype was, and the, the prevailing attitude was, oh, if you're going to the cloud, then you just need to add CASB. But it's actually everything you've got has to start thinking and understanding how the cloud works so that those other security measures can apply. So as we discussed, the report isn't just scary stories about bad practices and user clicking on links. What are some of the recommendations in the report to address this cloud security trend?
1: Well, most organizations will admit privately that they still don't have adequate cloud security deployment. Privately, they'll tell you that, right? To gain Mm -hmm. protection for the cloud, You might require a cloud access security broker, which you mentioned CASB, a cloud workload protection platform, which is a CWPP, this is about containers, right? And a cloud security posture management system, CSPM, which is about, are my configurations set up correctly to avoid breach? Am I set up to meet compliance, right? There's a lot of bells and whistles and one switch is wrong you may be out of compliance also. So you will likely require integrations to many custom pieces of software, if you're a big enterprise and other security control program products. Uh, In addition, really, to make it all manageable, you need to acquire and implement probably a security orchestration automation response, aka SOAR platform. Uh, I believe personally, you know, that you need to step up in a meaningful way to zero trust you know, find your way forward with SASE, Secure Access Service Edge. These are kind of basics now. And and the the cloud has required a lot more infrastructure around it to secure it. One of the most important basics is to include DNS security, right? Mm -hmm. DNS security is one of the few technology sets that will protect on-premise cloud and uh, work from anywhere users and resources from one Central administration point uh, for those of you that roll up your sleeves and do this, that's one set of policies that's really key, right every vendor wants them programmed differently, right you have one set of policies, one admin, one central administration point and you can cover everything and catch you know so much of the malicious attempts to outreach to bad domains or bad websites or command and control and other things like that. Well, and the nice thing about
0: DNS is that it's not like installing a new security solution that now has to intercept traffic at a new point and do some additional work. It's just uh, part of your DNS infrastructure, which you already have today, and just uses the existing data. So um, it's just adding policies that monitor and are based on existing data you already have and uh, extrapolating from it. So, But I want to applaud you for the report because um, I know you've mentioned them here in the podcast, but that's not you totally extrapolating and adding you know, something unique here in the podcast. That's actually in the report. And I really think that when a report starts being rather agnostic about the solutions that it, it has in its recommendations, in, including a lot of these that are, you know, the Infoblox doesn't sell CASB and some of these things. So that bumps this report up a few notches on the useful scale for me. Um, but you also used a, a, a phrase that caught my ear and that's work from anywhere. Now, we've had a lot of that that's just kind of, you know, it, it's almost getting done to death. But that's because people are just kind of using general statements. You need to do it. It's important. Um, your workforce is transformed. That That's kind of everybody understands. But what is the CIU seeing specifically in the area of the work from home uh, and the work from anywhere shift? I mean, is it still an area of concern? I mean, we've been, you know, we've had COVID for a year. Everybody's already shifted
1: that way, haven't they? Well, with many organizations that allowed users to utilize, you know, home broadband for work, mm-hmm. uh, the reality is that the corporate attack service has just grown substantially. You know, with with sensitive data pretty much being strewn and exposed everywhere. None of this has changed this year, right? Last year was last year, 2021 it's the same thing. Work from anywhere um, grew substantially because of the pandemic. But even as the pandemic will ease in the future, these environments combined with traditional on-premise workers are not going to go away. They're going to continue to be prevalent. In right. fact, um, I saw a survey that from Osterman Research that recently showed that most organizations believe they would have about twice as many remote workers even in a post COVID world. So yes, work from anywhere is a long-term concern and people don't have the right place pieces in place just yet.
0: Wow. So what are these security teams still struggling with, you know, a year into this whole COVID response, work from more anywhere response? What are they still struggling with in this area?
1: Oh, well, WFA brought problems that, you know, still haven't been fixed. So The proliferation really of access from untrusted home networks, um, which, you know, often contain many varieties of malware, untrusted home devices. Most don't have configured firewalls or endpoint security, not a chance of that. And it's just opened up many more risks for the devices, whether it's your personal device, your BYOD device, or your issued corporate device just because you have a VPN doesn't mean you can't get malware off your home network. Right. And so, so that's the tip of the problem. Working remotely just presents vulnerabilities that are more easily exploited by threat actors, remote workers and business partners require access to, you know, enterprise resources from multiple endpoints. And, you know, that's employer provided and personal laptops and a variety of mobile devices. So, You know, many cybersecurity procedures and security controls within these enterprise facilities, you know, cannot provide adequate security for the locations used by WFA employees. The enterprise on-premise stack doesn't have what you need. Yeah, I had to chuckle when uh, you were talking about, you know, um, home devices not being properly configured.
0: Earlier, we were talking about the devices managed by professionals, seasoned professionals, they make mistakes you know in their cloud configs and so forth. you know it's bound to happen obviously in the home environment. So since the CIU specializes in internet security in general and DNS security for those who may not be that familiar with us, um, how does DNS security fit into this home security aspect Because DNS would be something you'd think the, the the network uses, but what about remote workers?
1: yeah, DNS security is very useful to protect WFA workers. you know, and it's easy to deploy and administer because it covers all of the different flavors wherever you are, not just WFA. Um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the earliest steps in the attack of a threat actors' attack chain is the use of DNS to reach out to malicious domains, um, you know, establish command and control communication. And so DNS security is an area where an organization can deploy one technology set with consistent administrative and management interface to protect all the on-premise cloud and WFA. If you've got to set up complex policies, you do it in one place. So it's very convenient and all-encompassing. I
0: guess that doesn't only provide protection, but also provides the visibility and the tracking that they need if something does happen with a remote employee. So it's clear that almost every every one of these attacks is going to require dns at some point i know there's probably some exceptions but in general anything that wants to go out to the internet for uh you know command and control phone home whatever uh it's going to have to use dns but let's talk about how they start in the first place before it gets on your machine and starts to do phone home and request you know encryption keys for the ransomware or whatever or start stealing data share with us the top threat vector that we uh, are seeing that is initiating these kinds of cyber
1: attacks in Q1? Yeah, hands down, email remains the top threat vector used to attack both government and business of all size. 75% to perhaps over 90% of malware is delivered via email. Uh, despite training, I mean, we all get these training courses, we get once a quarter, click the buttons, right? Yeah. And widespread warnings about mal spam Users continue to open suspicious emails, dive in head first and cooperate, whether it's their business account or their personal account, and they click on everything. And they yeah. click on malicious email attachments and URLs, as well as, you know, go to websites not generally associated with business use and malware gets inside the enterprise.
0: And particularly, again, going back to the work from anywhere, if they're working from home... They may also, on that business machine, when they've got a break, go look up, you know, where they can pick up this item that they want to buy this afternoon. Check the hours on a store they're planning on visiting after work. So a lot more personal stuff is probably happening as well. So now I recall back in the 90s, this is, I mean, email being number one isn't much of a surprise because back in the 90s, I remember when floppy disks were number one and was finally overtaken with email as the number one. But it's interesting that, I mean, that's the 90s. This is, you know, 25 years later, and we still have users um, that have been more educated about it. They, they I'm surprised at the user education um, that I find more common, but the attackers seem to keep shifting their their social engineering and, and their other tactics. So it just keeps working. Um, it's like a malicious energizer bunny. Um, but the report calls out a number of attacks over the, the quarter. Could you share an example of one of those so that people will get an example of kind of, you know, what the deep dive is? Yeah. And and way, this is going to have to wrap it up because we are hitting up on time here.
1: Okay. So very recently we published a report on a mouse spam campaign, which was distributing uh, the Burkina Trojan, a dangerous Trojan. Um, the common theme was socially engineered email to entice the user to take an action by clicking the URL, opening the attachment, which in turn progressed the kill chain of the attack. You know, the Burkina Trojan, you know, followed that script. Um, about a month ago, we observed a mouse spam campaign distributing the Burkina Trojan. Mm-hmm. We've, this was first seen about 2017. Burkina is a Trojan distributed through EXE files sent via email all the time. It infects the victim's computer, attempts to harvest credentials, stops processes, conceals network connections, does all kinds of malicious stuff, and of course, reaches out to command and control to get additional instructions. The threat actor can use the stolen credentials now to carry out more malicious acts, you know, dropping ransomware or distributing other payloads. We've seen TrickBot get distributed. So in terms of remediation, right, the takeaway is that the single key event in the kill chain is a socially engineered user engagement, right? It's not about fancy software. It's about not clicking on attachments and having the savvy to to see through their social engineering and know that something's dangerous.
0: Yeah. And um, since we are tight on time, just I want to highlight that some of the other questions I was hoping to get to today, but uh, we got a lot of other good information early on, is that there's a whole section in this report on ransomware. So if somebody's interested in digging on the latest of what's happened there, um, that information's in here. Um And of course, there's some references to COVID. It's still an issue. We've kind of touched on it a little bit here, but COVID continues to be a a hot topic. And there's a lot of links in the report. I want to make sure everybody understands there's, uh, you know, the report is as compact as possible, reasonably possible, but it links to other information. So as you find something that might be of particular interest or use to your organization, you'll be able to link into more detailed information. So the last question for you here
1: is basically, when and where are people going to be able to get access to this report? Yeah, Bob, at the same place, uh, infobox.com, cyberintelligence unit, you know, and you'll see how to navigate to the reports. Yeah,
0: the CIU is on the top menu, so they should be able to get to it straightforward. So um, I am afraid we're out of our time, but uh, thank you very much, Michael.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me today. I look forward
0: to it again. Oh, yeah, because you said it's clockwork. So we'll be doing these uh, on a quarterly basis. And I want to thank all of our listeners at this time. Join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top and ahead of cybersecurity on Threat Talk.